Okay, we're up as far as chapter 8 and 9. Um, got all the Lord willing this morning in the book of uh, Second Kings. Uh, so let's just bow our hearts as we turn to God's word now. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. Well, this isn't just a book that reveals concepts and some religious ideas. This is a book that speaks to the heart of every person on this planet. Lord, it's up to us whether we're willing to listen. And Father, I pray this morning for those that are gathered here, Lord, those that maybe will listen to this recording afterwards, that you would speak to us. Give us ears, Lord, that will hear, hearts that are ready to receive what you have for us. Challenge us, encourage us, edify us, we pray. And may Jesus be lifted high, we ask in his precious name. Amen. Just as a kind of a recap, some of the things we've already mentioned, but this book of Second Kings really is recording the ruin of these two kingdoms. We've got the southern part of Israel, which is of course known as Judah, uh, the northern part known as Israel. The key phrase that comes through this book time and time again is according to the word of Jehovah, according to the word of the Lord. The phrase just keeps repeating as God is speaking to people. It's incredible in a time of national apostasy where people were turning away from God, God doesn't stop speaking. Sadly, there's not that many that have ears to hear. Um, the key person is Elisha. Of course, we've been looking at the miracles of Elisha so on. Uh, Elisha, we find 16 different miracles recorded. If you remember, Elisha had requested uh, a double portion of the anointing that had been on Elijah. Elijah, we find in eight miracles that are listed for us. Well, of Elisha, we note there's 16. So... God fulfilled that, and Elisha does have this anointing upon his life and work and ministry. Uh, and one of the key words that uh, occur is a man of God. That phrase is used 36 times. Uh, again, speaking of Elisha, this man that God had appointed to do this work for him. And that's that phrase, again, more in this book than any other book of the Bible. Uh, there's the key concept, though, of course, is the contrast between he that did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of Jehovah, And the other phrase that occurs, and that's 21 times it's used, is he that did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And it's just interesting, I mean, some of you may have looked before at Bible numerics. The the Bible uses numbers in a very consistent way. Five always seems to denote grace when you come across that in the Bible. And five times we find he that did that which was right in the sight of uh, the eyes of the Lord. Twenty-one times, uh, there's multiple of seven, three times seven, seven being the number in Scripture that always seems to be referenced to complete, of course, seven days in the week and you know so on. Many other occurrences we could mention of that. Um, but complete, but also three, three times seven, three is always in reference to God. And it almost seems to have the idea that, that God gets to that point of those that did evil in the sight of the Lord, and now it's enough. And now judgment comes. Because that's exactly what we're going to see as we move on. Just to give us an idea of the, the timeline we're looking at, the Bible is written during this period from the time of Moses... Okay, after the exodus from Egypt, uh, Moses, during his time in the, in the wilderness, starts penning and collating things that have been written. We find that we have the book of Adam, and no doubt these things have been passed down. But Moses is the one that collates the first five books, and then the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, and then we've got, of course, the New Testament, which takes us up to the end of the first century. So this is the, the period of writing of the Bible, of course... In terms of the time that the Bible covers, it covers the whole of history, uh, right from the creation, uh, the beginning of the world. Uh, and yeah, we, the world has this, this word that we often use, prehistoric. No such thing. 
Can't be prehistoric because the beginning of history is told us there. In the beginning, you agree you can't get before the beginning because the beginning wouldn't be the beginning if you could get before the beginning. Are you with me? So the beginning is the beginning. That's when God starts everything. There is no prehistory. And all, all that we need to know about everything in this life is recorded in Scripture for us. Now, this is the period that we're looking at here, the period of the monarchy. Okay, so from the establishment we have, of course, Saul that comes to the throne first, then David, and then Solomon, and then the kingdoms divide. And that's what we've been looking at as we've been going through. So that's the period we're looking at. Let's jump into then the chapter for this morning, uh, chapter 8. And we read verse 1. Then spoke Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life. You remember a few chapters back we saw this miracle. And he said unto her, Arise and go thou and thine household and sojourn wherever thou can, sojourn. For the Lord has called for a famine, and it shall come also come upon the land seven years. So Elisha just warning this woman that God is going to bring a famine on the land. It's going to last seven years. Just go. Go wherever. Just get out of the land, because it's not going to be a good place to be here. And we're told, And the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. Now, just a, a couple of comments uh, regarding famines, uh, because it's quite interesting. There's seven natural famines that are recorded in Scripture, uh, and excluding those that were brought about as a result of sieges. Um, but natural famines, so uh, lack of rains and so on. Uh, the first one we find in Genesis 12 uh, with Abraham, and then Genesis 26, Isaac, and Genesis 41 with Jacob. And it's interesting because in each of those... We don't find that the famine is brought about as a result of divine judgment, but clearly God is using those situations to lead his people, the individuals in those situations. Then we've got the last three, which is in 2 Samuel uh, 21, we've got David uh, as the, the principal character at that time. 1 Kings 18, we looked at with Elijah, and then this one now being referenced uh, in this chapter 8 of 2 Kings with Elisha. And all of those three are divine judgment. We've then got the one that's in the book of Ruth recorded for us. And this is interesting because that's partly divine leading, God working in that situation, and it's also partly divine judgment. And it's just an overlap. And some commentators have highlighted this, that it almost seems to be kind of a, a model in a sense of the tribulation time. The tribulation we'll find in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, is divided into two periods of three and a half years. In the first period of that time, it's not a pleasant place to be by any means, but God is working and there will be people who are saved, who are brought to him during that time. The last period of the tribulation, the last three and a half years, are going to be a time when God's wrath is really in full poured out on this unbelieving world. It's just interesting we see these things. So, I'll just share that with you. Um, in regard to Israel's famines, um, famines always bring us to a point of crisis and or decision. Now, the prodigal son, of course, in Luke 15 is a great example of that. He's in a situation, he's taken his inheritance and wasted it on the things of the world. And then he's in a position where he's in the land in famine. And, of course, it brings him to that place of a decision in his life. And famines do that. And, by the way, famines don't always necessarily have to be an absence of food. Now, of course, from a, a biblical point of view in the context this morning, that's what we're talking about. But there's a lot of things that can occur in our lives where there can be lack. And sometimes God allows those things to bring us to him. So, again, whether it be a famine of food or something else that's going on. Chuck Misler makes the comment, he says, We can't conceive of a holy God wanting anything less than his very best for his children. And the very best he can give us is a holy character. 
And sometimes God allows things in our lives and things are maybe taken away so that we're caused to seek his face. And that just shows, again, the love of God. I was in a situation this week where I was having to uh, tell Amita off for something she'd done. And I was chatting with her. I said, why do you think Daddy has to tell you off? And we were just talking it through. And I said, do you understand that the reason I tell you off is because I love you? I was just helping her to understand that the reason we discipline, the reason we tell off and correct, isn't because we don't love our children, it's because we do love our children. Well, if that's what earthly fathers are like, what about God who's a good and loving heavenly father? Well, he will do things again in our lives, allow things to bring us to that place of decision, to get us back on track. Really, it's uh, in order that we may trust and obey, as the great hymn says. That's what it's really all about. So, we then carry on and we read, And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines. And she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. Now, we need to uh, understand a little bit about this situation, why she would do this. Back in Leviticus... 25 verses 23 onwards we read, The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession you shall grant a redemption for the land. If thy brother be waxen poor and has sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall you redeem that which his brother sold. Basically the rule is, the land belongs to God. God says you're not allowed to sell the land. But if you're poor, and for any reason you do sell the land, it's kind of a lease arrangement. It doesn't pass title permanently. It's a temporary arrangement. And if somebody wants to come back who's a member of your family, or even if you yourself later on come back, you can redeem, you can purchase back that which was yours. Now actually in all of this is a wonderful picture of God's redemption. Because Christ has redeemed us. He's purchased us back. But in regards to the land, in, in, a, in a city, uh, in a walled city, if a house was sold after a year, full title passed to whoever had taken it. But any piece of land, well, that belonged to the family forever. And God was very, very strict about that rule and law. And there's a number of occasions that occurs in Scripture. And so we then read that the king... So this lady's now coming back to the king. She wants to purchase back her land that she previously had before she'd gone away before the famine. And she comes to the king. But we read that the king talked with Gehazi. Now Gehazi, remember, we've come across already, he was the servant of Elisha. And this is the one who'd been struck with leprosy after the event and situation with Naaman. Well, the king's now talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and said, Tell me, I pray thee, pray thee, all the great things that Elisha has done. So he's heard all these great stories and situations, and of course, in himself, has seen firsthand some of the incredible things. But it's interesting, isn't it, that we're going to see God use this situation to bring about the restoration of this woman's land. Now, as I've been said before, coincidences are when God chooses to work anonymously. There's no real such thing as coincidence. You know, God is on the throne. God is in control. You know, remember Romans 8 verse 28, that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. God's in complete control. And often we think, oh, wasn't that a surprise? It wasn't to God. Sometimes things take us by surprise, but God is in complete control. And this situation here, as we're going to see, just demonstrates God's control of this situation. You know, the king asking these questions about what Elisha has done. You remember Elisha 
had been the one that had led the Syrian army blinded into Samaria. And the king says, well, what do you want me to do with them? Shall I kill them? Or eventually they're sent away in peace and so on. You know, so the king had already seen a number of these miracles firsthand. And he's asking now, just tell me some of the things that Elisha has done. It's funny, isn't it? I don't think he was looking at um, repenting, seeking God, but just curious. Just a little bit like the world today, isn't it? Curious at the things that, that Christians do or say or whatever. I don't really want to get involved, but just curious on the outside. And we're told, and it came to pass that while he was telling the king how he restored a dead body to life, that behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for a house and for a land. So it just happens to arrive at this moment in time. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So he's like, is this true? Yeah, yeah, and this is my son, look. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers, and all the fruits of the field, since the day that she left the land, even until now. Now it's not implying that whoever was currently in the piece of land in question is suddenly turfed out, and she's just, you know, she the idea was there'd have been this kind of redemption, there'd have been a fee paid to purchase the land back. Um, but she's obviously given um, authority from the king now, just in case there's any difficulty and whoever is there is a bit reluctant. But this just leads on to another thought that we can have uh, in regard to this, about the way the Lord directs our paths. In Matthew 6.25, we read, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Well, that's a pretty challenging verse, isn't it? I mean, do, do we live that way? You know, don't think about your life. Don't worry about your life. I mean, this woman is in a situation, seven years she's been away. She's traveling back and she's probably thinking, I wonder if I'm going to get my land back. What's going to happen? What should I do? Should I go straight to the person that's got the land or should I go to the king? Or She feels led to go to the king and God's there. God meets her right where she needs him. And just incredible how God's goes before us. You know, so often we worry about things. And we shouldn't worry. We should trust God. Oswald Chambers says this. He says, take no thought for your life, based upon this verse. We just read from Matthew. He says, be careful about one thing only, says our Lord, your relationship to me. Common sense shouts loud and says, that's absurd. I must consider how I'm going to live. I must consider what I'm going to eat and drink. Jesus says you must not. Beware of allowing the thought that this statement is made by one who does not understand our particular circumstances. Jesus Christ knows our circumstances better than we do. And he says we must not think about these things so as to make them the one concern of our life. Whenever there is competition, be sure that you put your relationship to God first. You see, the danger is we often put our plans, the things we need, the things we want to do as our number one priority. And then God gets put down the list somewhere. And then we try and get God to bless what we're doing. And sometimes we're surprised it doesn't always work out. At our Bible study on Thursday, we actually were looking in James chapter 4, and this verse came up. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know that your life, uh, sorry, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. You see, God wants us to put our trust in Him. 
Now, one of the questions that came out on Thursday as we were looking at this is, is it wrong to plan for the future? Now, actually, the initial reaction is, well, of course it's not. Why? Why do we say that? Because that's what we do. We like to do that. We like to be in control of everything. Now, of course, there are things we've got to think about. You know, it's not saying that we just don't think about what we do as I go through our lives, you know, you know. Don't go to the shop and then just, well, now what are we going to... No, no, there's a common sense employed here, of course. But we're talking about the big things that we think about. The direction of our lives, our future, our career, our family. All the things, the, the big things. Do we trust God in those things or are we trying to take the initiative and run with it? You see, is it wrong to plan for the future? Well, it does depend on whether or not you trust God. Because if you trust God, you don't have to worry about planning for the future. You can, of course, make your plans, but you've got to trust God with the outcome and not just go where you thought you wanted to go. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. You know, God is in control. And we need to trust him with these things. Jeremiah 10.23 says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. What a great verse. You see, it's not just that you shouldn't do it. God actually says you can't do it. If you try and make your own plans for your life and go how you think it's going to go, it's not going to work out very well. Because it's not even within us to be able to direct our own steps. In contrast, Psalm 37 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. You know, God is the one with the map. And to try and start navigating our way through life without seeking God is foolish. We need to go to the one who has the directions and seek him. This woman, seemingly trusting God, she trusts the man of God, she goes, but when she comes back, she sees that God had already gone before her. Had already planned all this situation, this problem out. You know, we often worry about so many things, and yet when we trust God, those things just dissipate. Verse 7 carries on. And Elisha came to Damascus. Okay, so Damascus, Syria, moving up north now from, from Israel, where he'd been living and staying. And, and Ben Hadid, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God is come hither. And the king said unto Hazel, so this servant of his, Take a present in thine hand, and go meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? So, this challenge. Now, Elisha is the man that's caused havoc to Ben Hadid's army, on a number of occasions, actually, but not least that one I mentioned a moment ago, when these invading armies of Syrians were blinded and taken to Israel's capital, to Samaria, and then eventually sent home. I mean, I wonder what Ben Hadid, king of Syria, thought at that time. I wonder what Ben Hadid thought when one of his key generals, who was dying of leprosy, went on a little trip to Israel and then came back totally healed and cleansed from this incurable disease. And so, obviously, Ben Hadid's heard of Elisha. And now he's sick himself. And it's funny how when people are sick, they kind of want to consider God a bit more. Suddenly those thoughts about eternity have a little bit more import in our lives. <clears throat> Verse 9 carries on. So Hazel went to meet him and took a present with him, even 
of every good thing of Damascus. And notice this, 40 camels burden and came and stood before him. Now, just to put this in context, it doesn't necessarily mean that they had 40 camels all loaded up and it's like, there you go, Elisha. He's like, well, where am I going to put this? Um, probably what would have happened then, looking at some of the commentaries, um, to make a big show of it, um, each camel would have probably taken one gift. So still an awful lot of things that they're giving uh, to Elisha to try and curry his favour, to, to get him to say something positive and maybe even to heal Ben Hadid. And so this message comes and says, Thy son Ben-Hadid, king of Syria, has sent me to thee, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? And Elisha said unto him, unto Hazel, Go say unto him, Thou may certainly recover, howbeit the Lord has shown me that he shall surely die. So it's kind of a, a strange response. Yes, he's going to recover, but he's going to die. But then Elisha carries on. And we read, And he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. So, it's kind of an awkward moment here. And Elisha just starts to cry. And Hazel says, why are you crying, my Lord? Why weepest, my Lord? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will slay with the sword. And you will dash their children and rip up their women with child, their pregnant women. I mean, Hazel's just come to ask a question and suddenly he's confronted with this response. Implying that he's some wicked, barbarous individual. Hazel says, but what? Is I serving a dog? What are you saying? What are you saying of me? That he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that thou shalt be king over Syria. Well, now it starts to hit. Because already Hazel's been having these thoughts. Already Hazel has been thinking about this. This isn't just a spur of the moment thing. This is something that's been going on in Hazel for a while. And suddenly Elijah cuts straight to it. And whilst he may not admit it, Hazel knows exactly what Elijah is saying. And we read verse 14. So he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, unto him, What did Elisha, or what said Elisha to thee? And he answered, He told me that thou shalt surely recover. What a lovely message of hope and peace. But then verse 15 carries on and says, It came to pass on the morrow, the very next day, that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died. And Hazel reigned in his stead. So Hazel, this servant of the king, comes, suffocates the king, kills him. Even though God has said he would recover, of course, that recovery is very short-lived because the next day he's killed. No doubt, quick sin can take hold. You see, these thoughts had already been going around in Hazel's head and now he's in this position. And it's just the very next day. You know, he doesn't stop to... To think about what Elisha said and think, you know, is that the path I want to go down for my life? If this is what Elisha is saying, my life will become like, do I really want to go that way? It's a little bit like people in the world, you know. The Bible speaks so clearly about the dangers that await us if we indulge in sin. And yet very few people ever stop to think, is that really what I want my life to be like? Casting Crowns, in one of their songs, have this great lyric. It just says, the journey... From your mind to your hands is shorter than your thinking. 
I love that. It's just so true. You know, the things that we're thinking, you know, we think we're in control. We think we've got it all under control. But as this demonstrates, the very next day, Hazel just jumps into the situation, ends up killing the king and then claiming the, the title of the throne himself. Jesus said this, he said, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Again, those desires. No doubt Hazel thought it'd be nice to be king. Of course, it'd be great to be king, but that's not the sin. The sin is when he thought, yeah, actually, you know what, I'd do a pretty good job at that. And he's drawn away. The verse in James, and we looked at this recently in our Bible studies, is a term that's used in hunting animals, and it's to entice, to set a, a trap. You know, noticing there's a trap is not the problem, but walking straight into it is. He's run away enticed, and then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And this is a process that you can't stop. Once it starts, you can't stop it. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And we see it echoed a number of times in different passages in Scripture, not least this one this morning. And then we're told, in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat... Being then king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. Now, try and help to join these dots together because we've got lots of names and the North Kingdom, the South Kingdom and so on. So, going back a bit, we've been speaking about King Ahab. Ahab is the one who Elijah tussles with consistently. Uh, His wife, Jezebel... She's the, the daughter of Ethbel, the, uh, the king of the Sidonians. So she's a, a, a king's daughter. But she marries um, Ahab, the king of Israel. Again, just against the, the law that God has said. They shouldn't marry into these other nations for fear that they'd be led away into idolatry, which is exactly what happens here. Jezebel, a wicked queen. They have a, a son, Ahaziah. He reigns for just two years. We've seen that already. Um, But then they have their second son, Jehoram. And he's the king that we've been looking at in Israel recently. And he reigns for 12 years. Now we're going to see in a while that there's going to be another individual, the the, uh, lineage of Ahab, and Ahab's father who was a man called Omri. That's going to be put to an end by this individual Jehu. We'll see him come to the text in a moment. But they also, Ahab and Jezebel, have a daughter who is Athaliah. Well, she ends up marrying the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel, who's a man by the name of Jehoram. Now this gets a little confusing because we now have two Jehorams. Um, To make it easy, this one is sometimes referred to as Joram. To make it complicated, this one is also referred to as Joram. So, But we've got one in the north, one in the south, and actually they both end up reigning at the same time. So if you're reading through Kings, you just need to be sure which one we're looking at as we're doing that. Well, we find that Athaliah and Joram have a son who's named Ahaziah, which doesn't help because we've got an Ahaziah there and now an Ahaziah here as well. It's no different than we have today. We obviously like popular names and the same as going on in Israel. Now, Jehu, we're going to see, will put both of these two individuals to death. And that's where we're going to conclude in a short while. So... Um, there is, of course, a little bit of a twist as we get to a little bit further on. And we're going to find that Jehoram has another daughter by the name of Jehosheba. Now what she does is a very good thing because this queen Athaliah, after Ahaz is killed, she becomes queen. And then we find 
that Joash uh, is only a young child, a six-year-old child at the time. Uh, he's taken away and hidden um, by Jehoshaphat. So we'll see that unfolding in the text in a little while. Okay, so let's try to go through the, the narrative and just try and make sense of some of this as we go through. So 32, 32 years old was he when he began to reign. Okay, so we're down here looking at Jehoram. And he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Okay, so again, this is Jerusalem, this is Judah, and this is Israel over that side. And he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as did the house of Ahab. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. So here we are, Athaliah. Um, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, that often repeated phrase. Okay, and then verse 19. uh, Yet the Lord would not destroy David for his servant's sake, as he promised him to give him always a light unto his children. Now, in the midst of all this, again, we just see the faithfulness of God. God had made this promise to David. And when God makes promises, he doesn't break his promises. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. God's very nature is to be faithful. Isn't it a good thing? Because even when we mess up, God is faithful. That great verse we have in 1 John. that says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we depend on his faithfulness as well. And just as God had promised that there would always be somebody to sit on the throne of Judah, of Israel, uh, so he does here. And of course, the Messiah, Jesus, will be the, the final fulfillment of that. Now we're told in his days, Edom, so now we're still talking about Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat. Uh, in his days, um, uh, Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah, and made a king over themselves. So up until this time, they've been servants, they've been playing uh, a tribute each year. So Joram went over to Zaire, or Seir, the area of Edom, and all the chariots with him, and he rose by night and smote the Edomites, which compassed him about, and the captains of the chariots and all the people fled into their tents. Yet Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah unto this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. So He's gradually losing his grip, losing the authority, losing the power they've had over the nations that have been around them. Again, we're still looking at Judah down south. Proverbs 16.7 tells us, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. How interesting here that we're in this situation that the king of Judah, I mean, the king in Jerusalem had once ruled over the whole of the land. Through disobedience, the land gets divided into the north Israel and the south Judah. And now we're starting to find that these other nations that have been tributaries under Solomon are all starting to break away as well. So Edom down here, they come down here to fight. And although they seem to be successful in this battle, they still lose control. And they lose the the tribute money that was coming each year from Edom. And we're told the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? We've commented before how often we see these things. That that, that kind of phrase repeats uh, repeatedly through kings. The rest of the acts, everything else, you know, all that matters at the end of your life is your relationship with God. All the other things you've done, all the certificates, everything else you've accomplished and achieved doesn't mean anything. It has no eternal value. It's your relationship with God. It's the treasure in heaven that counts. And Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his stead. 
Okay, so Joram now is off the scene. And we read, In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, did Ahaziah, son of Joram, king of Judah, begin to reign. So again, just you can see on the screen there, just to help the clarification. Uh, verse 26 carries on. Two and twenty years, 22 years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. So this king here, now son of Joram, just one year he reigns. His mother's name was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri. Now, just to clarify, because it's granddaughter, there's no uh, words in the Hebrew for grandson or, or that type of thing. Um, but Omri was Ahab's father. So king of Israel, Omri, his son was Ahab. And it's, although it's talking about Athaliah, the daughter of Omri, it's just a lineage person, because Omri is the first king in this dynasty. Okay, he's the one that triggers the whole of this dynasty off. So he's like the, the granddad that starts this, this dynasty. Uh, Omri's his son, but Athaliah being his granddaughter, that's really all that, that means and references there. Then carry on. And he walked in the ways of... So again, now we're focusing on Ahaziah. He walked in the ways of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, as did the house of Ahab. For he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Again, just as we just said. Uh, and he went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, to go to war against Hazel, king of Syria. Now, mentioned, we've mentioned Hazel a moment ago. Um, we'll see, uh, again will occur. Um, but Hazel, king of Syria, is this one that has now just killed his master, Ben-Hadad. He's now sitting on the throne up in Syria. And now these two agree to work together. Again, there's this kind of family connection. And so Ahaziah, just in his one year as king down in Judah, and Jehoram is reigning up in Israel. They go together to war uh, against Hazel, king of Syria, in Ramoth Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram went back to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazel, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. So these two, they go off in battle, they come back, and then a little while later, however short a time, but not very long, obviously, Ahaziah then goes up to see Joram, see how he's faring, how he's doing after his battle sustained an injury. And Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins and take this box of oil in thy hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when thou come there, they look out there, look out there, Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat. Now just for clarification, this is not the king by the same name. This is another individual identified as Jehoshaphat the son of Nimshi. And so Elisha's servant is to go to find this individual, Jehu, and go in and make him arise up from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber. Get him on his own. And then take the box of oil and pour it on his head. And say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. So this is going to be now a change of dynasty in Israel in the north. Then open the door and flee. Get out of there. Run. And tarry not. So the young man, a young man, even the young man, the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he came, behold, the captains of the host were sitting. So these are the Jehoram, king of Israel. These are his captains, those that are leading his army. They're all met together, all gathered together. Again, probably not long after this battle they've just fought. And maybe they're thinking, you know, just talking over the battle, or maybe the next battle plans. And so he comes and says, I have an errand to thee, O captain. And Jehu said, Unto which of all us? In other words, who of us? All of us or just one? He says, to thee, O captain. So he rose and went into the house. So they get him, he gets him alone, as he'd been told to do, and poured the oil on his head and said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed thee king 
over the people of the Lord. You see, notice what he's being told here. It's not just to be king over Israel, but king over God's people, even though they're in disobedience, even though they're you know, into idolatry and all sorts of things, God still has compassion for his people. And he says to Jehu that you're going to be the king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. And thou shalt smite, this is an instruction now, of the house of Ahab thy master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets. Now remember that Ahab, Jezebel, they just wreaked havoc amongst the prophets of the Lord, putting many of them to death. And the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall. Again, that's the, the language that we have actually in the, the Hebrew. It's, uh, the word is there. And of course it's referring to any male descendants. Of him that is shut up and left in Israel, and I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who we saw right at the start of all of this with the division of the kingdoms, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, both of whom came to a very unpleasant end. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. Now this is the prophecy that we'll see fulfilled in a moment. And he opened the door and fled. So just now he's come in, he's got Jehu on his own, he's delivered, he's anointed him, delivered the message, and now he goes. Then came Jehu forth to the servants of his Lord, and one said unto him, Is all well? Wherefore came this mad fellow to see thee? And he said unto him, You know the man and his communication, (laughs) you know what these people are like. (laughs) Everyone looks at him and goes, Yeah, right. Come on, tell us what he really said. And he said, It's false, tell us now. And he said, Well, thus and thus spoke he to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. (laughs) He drops off the my people bit, doesn't he? Notice? Kind of already, he's kind of not really thinking it the way that it was said to him. He's not to be king over God's people. He's just looking, I'm going to be king. Then they hasted and took every man his garment and put it under him. So all these people now rally around Jehu. They put stuff on his, uh, out as he's about to walk and cover the stairs and everything else we're told and blow with trumpets saying, Jehu is king. So Jehu's now walking on this nice carpet of coats that have been laid down for him. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now, Joram had kept for him with Gilead. So in the battles, he hadn't lost it. He and Israel, because of Hazel, king of Syria. So Hazel had been trying to claim this land, to battle and win this land, this piece of uh, real estate, in a sense, Ramoth Gilead. But Joram had managed to hold on to it. Now, we read, but King Joram was returned to be healed in Jezreel. So remember again, thinking back, he was injured, he was poorly from his wounds which the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazel, king of Syria. And Jehu said, If it be in your minds, then let none go forth nor escape out of the city uh, to go to tell it in Jezreel. So, so in other words, they're saying, now let's go. He wants to go and see this king. So Jehu rode his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, was come down to see Joram. So both these kings, the king of the north, the king of the south, they're both gathered together. And now Jehu is on his way. And there stood a watchman on the tower of Jezreel, and he spied the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Jehoram said, Take a horseman and send to meet them. And let him say, Is it peace? Now, of course, at this time, they don't know why this delegation, and probably Jehu's coming with all the other captains that have now joined forces with him. This kind of military coup, in a sense, is about to take place. And no doubt lots of other cavalry and riders, effectively he's got the army behind him. And so as they're looking out, they can probably see the dust on the horizon. 
they send a, a reconnaissance horseman out to find out. So they went one on horseback to meet him and said, Thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, What is thou to do with peace? And I've really just, uh, <laughs> this, don't worry, I'm, I'm not coming to bring a message about peace is really what he's saying. He says, turn behind me. He says, come and get behind me. And the watchman told, saying, the messenger came to them, but he cometh not again. So from a distance, they're looking at these things, and the messenger doesn't come back. So then he sent out a second horseback, which came to them and said, thus is the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, what is thou to do with peace? Turn thee behind me. Now, back in Jezreel, they're probably thinking that they're bringing news of the war, some update or something. And the watchman Told saying he came, he came even unto them, uh, and cometh not again. Is the second one, and the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Now, some of you we could probably identify by your driving, um, but uh, Jehu here is identified because of the way that he's furiously driving in his chariot towards them. And Joram says, "Make ready," and his chariot was made ready. And Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out against Jehu and met him in the portion of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now you remember Naboth, the one who had been put to death, and these lies had been told about him. And it came to pass when Joram saw Jehu, that he said, is it peace, Jehu? Now at this point, all Joram knows is that Jehu is one of his captains. And that they've been fighting this war against the Syrians. And he's thinking, I'm going to get an update, I'm going to get some sort of notification. And he says, is it peace? How are we doing against the Syrians? But that's not why Jehu's come. And he said, Jehu says, put peace. So long as the whoredoms of thy mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. And that was not the response that Jehoram was expecting. And Jehoram turned his hands and fled. Suddenly he realizes that this is a, a military coup. That his captain of his army is turned against him. And he said to Ahaziah, there is treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew the bow with his full strength and smote uh, Jehoram between his arms and the arrow went out at his heart and he sunk down in his chariot. Then said Jehu to Bidkai, his captain, and take up and cast him in the portion of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember how that when I and thou rode together after Ahab his father, the Lord had laid this burden upon him. So the Lord now bringing judgment upon the family line that had so wickedly taken Naboth's life and stolen this land and given it to the king. Verse 26. Surely I have seen uh, yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord. And I will requite thee in this place, says the Lord. Now therefore take him and cast him into the plat of ground according to the word of the Lord. So King Joram is thrown into this piece of land to die there. Uh, or lay there dead. And when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house. And Jehu followed after him and said, Smite him also in the chariot. And they did so, at the going up of Gur, which is my Ibelim. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. Megiddo had been a, a major military place. Solomon had used it. It had been a place where they'd stored horses and so on. Of course, it's in the uh, Jezreel Valley, Valley, and it's the place that gives its name to Armageddon. Uh, Megiddo is this place. 
uh, part of the valley in Israel, in the middle of Israel. And his servants carried him from a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his sepulcher with his fathers in the city of David. So now Ahaziah, king of Judah, is now carried back down south and taken back to Jerusalem and buried. And we're told in the eleventh year of Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began Ahaziah to reign over Judah. And when Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel... Now she's the only one left of this lineage at the moment now, heard of it as she painted her face and tied her head and looked out at a window. And Jehu entered in the gate and said, Has Zimri peace who slew his master? That may seem a strange comment, uh, but if you remember, going back, looking at all the kings of Israel that we've been going through, we've got down now as far as here, and Jehu now has just killed Joram, this one here, but this reference was back to Zimri, who'd conspired, he'd killed Elah, he'd been his servant, he'd killed him, and so now he reigns, but only for one week, and then he's put to death under a gown of trees. And that's where this dynasty of Omri then begins. So that's what that reference is uh, to Zimri, who clearly had been wicked, and he ends up dying. But then we carry on. And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And they looked out to him two or three eunuchs, and he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. So this is Queen Jezebel now. Now she's an old lady at this point, no doubt. And some of the blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trod her underfoot. And when he was come in, he did eat and drink and said, go and see now this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. Now, possibly mindful that he's now become the king of Israel, he doesn't want to go and upset the Sidonians. Now, yes, he's just killed this uh, daughter of a king, but she deserved a burial because of royalty status and so on. So that's really the idea. But when we're told that they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Wherefore, they came again and told him, and he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall the dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field in the portion of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, This is Jezebel. So she's unidentifiable now because there's just nothing left of really to bury. Um, back in First Kings 21, that prophecy given by Elijah and of Jezebel, also spoke to the Lord, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Now, some years before that had been given, now in detail it's fulfilled. That brings us to the end of this chapter. So just a lot of kind of details of how it all fitted together and what went on there. But it's just interesting, you know, even with Jehu now, this individual who's coming to the throne, straight away he's been told that he's going to look after God's people, but he forgets that detail. And he's already talking about God being a God who keeps his word, fulfills his prophecies. And yet we're going to see that as his life carries on, he's not a good king either. What a challenge. Because, you know, God speaks so much in his word about us, each one of us, our lives, our future. You know, how many times do we hear things about God and then block our ears, choose not to listen? Think, oh, I've got too many other things to think about, or too many other priorities. You know, God is a God who gives us the opportunity to come to know him as Lord and Savior. It's by his grace. But if we keep hardening our hearts, there'll come a day that we won't hear anymore. Pharaoh is a great example of that. There's many others in scripture. 
You know, if the Lord does call, don't harden your hearts. You know, there's abundant evidence to prove that God's word is true. To prove that he really is God. It's not the evidence that's the problem, it's the heart. And unless we're willing to submit to God, to bow the knee humbly before him, to recognize that he is God, that he is the creator of all things, that he sent his son Jesus Christ to be the payment for our sin. Unless we're willing to come to that place. Well, these things, you may hear them, but they just keep bouncing off. Just like all these kings of Israel, one after another, after another. And what do we see? It just gets worse and worse and worse. One of the judgments that God allows frequently in Scripture is for people just to get on and do it their own way. Sometimes we think if God was to bring judgment, how would it appear? You know, and a lot of people in the world think, well, if God was cross with me, then he would just send a thunderbolt or something. No, 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 that's not the way God will work. God says, ultimately, look, you want to live your life your way? Okay, let's go. You know, that's the worst judgment you could possibly have because you will make more of a mess of your life by trying to do it your way. And God says that he has a perfect way, a perfect plan. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. and Lord, we thank you for this historical record that we have. The Lord just helps us to understand the, the times in which these kings lived. But Father, through it all, we just see a God who is calling to people to repent. Father, you've made it clear that salvation is only in the name of Jesus. We can't get to heaven by good works. We can't get to heaven by doing good things and trying hard, by being a nice person. Because the very best that we can bring is as filthy rags before a holy God. Lord, we want to humbly come before you, to bow the knee and say that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that we accept that Only through his death in our place can we come before a holy God clean and pure. And then, Lord, we have that great joy of knowing that you give us the promise of an abundant life. Not a life full of trials and problems that have no purpose. Oh, Lord, you do make it clear that we'll experience trials. But each one of those is to make us perfect and complete, that we lack nothing. So, Father, please impress these things upon our hearts and minds this day. And, Father, help us to be mindful also, as we saw with that lady whose son had been raised to life, that you're a God who engineers the circumstances for your saints. You direct the paths of those who are yours. And as we walk with you this week, may we walk trusting you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.